Moderna has once again impressed with phase three data for its COVID-19 vaccine. And today, the company will submit an application to FDA seeking authorization for emergency use. Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Lauren Martz, I head our translation and clinical development coverage. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. First up, word of a benefit from our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra, who kindly do our intro and outro music. They will be presenting Symphony for Science, an online event with music and words for next steps, supporting people with rare diseases, cancers, and HIV. That will be December 17th at 8 o'clock Eastern. You can register for this great benefit at symphonyforscience.org. Today, we'll dig into the latest from Moderna and check in on timelines for other vaccines. We'll also turn to Washington to check in on what HHS Secretary Azar has been up to. And then Lauren will explain how Immunicore has become the first company to solve one of the biggest challenges in immuno-oncology. Steve, you caught up with Moderna's CMO, Tal Zaks, to discuss the data. Beyond the data itself, one thing that really caught my eye in your first take story on the news is that Zaks told you that Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine development was much better as a result of the company's collaboration with Operation Warp Speed, but it was not faster. And that is the opposite of what I thought Operation Warp Speed was all about. Can you break that down for us? Yeah. So I spoke with Talzox, Moderna's chief medical officer last night. It was 321 days since the company produced the first dose of its mRNA vaccine. That's amazingly fast. We were discussing the phase three efficacy data that they're using to apply for emergency use authorization in the United States and for similar kinds of authorizations in Europe and around the world. When I asked him to discuss how much faster the development of the company's vaccine was as a result of Operation Warp Speed, he said it didn't speed it up by a single day. And he pointed to Pfizer, which didn't get any assistance from Operation Warp Speed on its R&D, and it had a similar timeline to Moderna's. Instead, he said that Warp Speed made the development program much better especially by ensuring that the vaccine was tested in a trial that enrolled a population with demographics that matches the U.S. population and that was enriched for individuals with risk factors for severe COVID. He also said that the financial backing from Operation Warp Speed was really important for giving reassurance to Moderna's investors because the development program was obviously quite expensive. Let's turn to the data itself. Selena, I know you've been tracking a lot of these vaccines. Anything stand out to you in particular? Anything that you were looking to see from this latest batch? Well, it was just the top line data. I think Steve already hit on the highlights, which is that it was effective in quite a broad population, a diverse population of individuals, including people over age 65, people of minorities, people with comorbidities. The company, as far as I could see, didn't break down the efficacy rates by all of those different measures, but they did say that their findings were consistent across them. So that's encouraging. The the other thing that they report is that 100% of the severe cases of COVID were in the placebo arm and that one person died 
from the placebo arm, which is sobering. It makes the, the, this whole thing real. And, and I think it also goes a long way to explaining another thing that Talzax told me, which is that he personally and Moderna as a company feel a commitment to people in the trial to unblind it as soon as they get emergency use authorization so that those who are in the placebo arm can have the opportunity to get the active vaccine. Sometimes we talk about these things in abstract and people say, oh, it would be better to keep the trial going on in a blinded fashion for the whole time period, six months or a year or something like that. But the fact that 30 people have already gotten severe disease who were in the placebo arm and one person has died brings it home. And you think, yeah, if I were in that trial and I'd um, taken my chances and I'd gotten the placebo, I would feel that the right thing to do would be to offer me the active vaccine. Is FDA and NIH on board with unblinding at that point, or do they want the companies to keep the trials blinded a bit longer? What Talzak told me is that they're going to coordinate this with FDA, and they're going to ensure that FDA gets the data that it needs. The advisory committee that's considering the vaccines made a point at their last meeting of encouraging the companies to keep the trials blinded as long as possible. There does seem to be a a tension between what the advisory committee is asking and what the companies, because Pfizer's made similar comments, feel that they're able to do on, on an ethical basis. What's the biggest risk with the unblinding? What's to be lost? Because you can still measure safety of the vaccine over time after unblinding. There's a sense that this data, the safety and the efficacy data won't be as reliable from an unblinded trial. What Talzax told me is that, look, there's 94.1% efficacy in the arm that received treatment, and that if there's a loss of protection, or if there's what he, what he called a breakthrough of disease among people who are vaccinated, that will be obvious regardless of blinding, especially for the severe cases. So his contention is that it'll still be possible to obtain valuable information going forward, even after the trial is unblinded. Now, next up is the advisory committee that you mentioned is expected to meet to review the application on December 17th. I believe they are reviewing the BioNTech and Pfizer vaccine December 10th. That's correct. It's incredibly fast, but I've got to wonder, given the state of things, why aren't they meeting tomorrow? Why aren't they meeting this week? I think that FDA has to review the data. Remember, FDA is different from regulators in other countries. FDA goes through the raw data and and analyzes it themselves. In other countries, regulators in Europe and other countries, regulators take the summary data that the companies present and they make their regulatory decisions based on that. It's got to take some time for FDA to go through the data and perform their own analyses of it. They can't do that overnight. All right. And this is just one of many vaccines that is starting to read out. Selena, as I said, you've been tracking this. Which COVID vaccines will we see data from next? And what are the results likely to tell us about the different modalities in development? Yeah, we've had a lot of phase three data to digest over the last three, four weeks from COVID vaccines. And so I just got curious last week to see, you know, is there going to be a lull now or is it going to keep on rolling with these phase three results? So we went into BioCentury's 
COVID-19 resource center in the portal where we track these things and look for all the publicly available information from the vaccines in there about phase three trials. And basically what we learned was the pace of redots is probably only going to increase, if anything. So what we're going to see through the end of this year and early next year is going to tell us more about the different technologies and developments. So we're going to see more data from viral vectored vaccines, which I think is going to be really important because the first readout from AstraZeneca was not nearly as clear or robust as the results we've seen from Pfizer and Moderna. Johnson & Johnson's has a adenovirus-based vaccine that's going to read out probably the end of this year, early next year. And CanSino, Chinese biotech, also has an adenovirus vector vaccine that's going to read out likely very soon. We'll see more data from the Russian vaccine, which I'm told is pronounced Sputnik, not Sputnik. And hopefully we'll see some more data from AstraZeneca as well. With the viral vector vaccines, they're also not a tried and true technology like mRNA. And one of the, the big questions about them, the risks that people are concerned about, are immunity is immunity against the vectors themselves. So for the ones that are based on human adenoviruses, you have this possibility of pre-existing immunity against the vector because the person has seen the virus, the adenovirus at some point in their life. You have this other problem of the vaccination itself inducing immunity against the vector so that when you go to give a boost shot, it's not as effective because the immune system recognizes the vector and attacks it before the antigen has time to do what it needs to do. There's, there's those two issues, and we're just going to need to see more data to see what's the best way to use these vectors and, and how useful, ultimately, will they be. So Johnson & Johnson's testing right now, the data we're going to see first from them was going to be from a single dose of an adenovirus vaccine. With the first readout, they're not even trying to um, get efficacy out of a second dose. They're just giving one but they have started another trial where they're testing too, and we'll get data from that a little later next year. The other things that I, I would bring up is the subunit protein vaccine from Novavax, That's right. which is in phase three trials in the UK and phase two trials in HIV patients in uh, South Africa, and is going to be starting trials in the US in, in a few weeks. Their UK trial is likely to read out sooner, like early next year. And the question will be whether they'll be able to file in the United States or the UK or elsewhere, based on that data, when I spoke with them a few weeks ago, they suggested that was a possibility. And then we're going to see the first data from inactivated virus vaccines. That's one of the oldest, most tested technologies out there. Two Chinese biotechs should have phase three data at any time, really. Sinovac and Sinopharm both have inactivated virus vaccines. The big difference there between those and the, all the other ones is all the other ones focus on one protein from the coronavirus, the spike protein, or even a piece of the spike protein. Whereas these, you have the full complement of things on the surface of the virus. So in theory, you could have a broader immune response, but we will see. The other thing that I came away from my discussion with um, Tal Zaks last night that was interesting was his prediction that NIH and FDA will certify correlates of protection for COVID-19 vaccines in the second half of 2021, which is, is going to be really important for all of these other vaccines that are being developed because it's not going to be possible 
to do really large placebo-controlled trials after there are multiple vaccines on the market, correlative protection will make it possible to continue to develop vaccines in the absence of those large placebo-controlled trials. Now, one of the key players in the Trump administration's response to the pandemic has been HHS Secretary Alex Azar. What has he been doing lately in terms of the government's response, Steve? I wrote a couple of stories recently, and I'm working on a bigger story now, which will be done today or tomorrow, about what what I call um, Azar throwing sand into the gears at FDA and other public health agencies on his way out the door. There are two particular things that I'm focusing on. One is a rule that he's proposed that would make all HHS regulations automatically sunset 10 years after they went into effect and create a very onerous process for the agencies that created those regulations to seek to have them renewed. It's something what people at FDA have told me is that would really gum up their operations. And and of course, uh, regulated industry is really opposed to this because it would create a great deal of uncertainty about the durability of regulations. The second thing, it's not an Azar thing. It's something that's happening from OMB, Director Vaught, and others in the White House, which is to create a, a new portion of the civil service, which will not have the protections against political interference um, and job protection that is traditionally available to, to civil servants. Large numbers of people potentially at um, FDA and CDC could fall into this, what they're calling a, a category F. There's a lot of consternation in government about this, and there's also a great deal of expectation that the Biden administration would reverse it. There's also efforts to have Congress cut off the funding so that it won't even be possible for uh, the Trump administration to put it into effect in its remaining time in office. So what's the latest uh, word on the mean streets of Washington as to who the Biden administration will select as HHS secretary? They've been pretty tight-lipped about it, and I'm really hesitant to say anything. It's you know, what Lao Tzu said, but it's the, the people who know don't talk and the people who talk don't know. You know you've got your ear to the ground. And once you do have some concrete information, you'll be reporting about it in BioCentury. Let's move away from the pandemic for once. <laughs> Let's turn to Immunicore, which last week reported positive pivotal data in a subset of melanoma. Lauren, you are following this story. What do the data mean for the company and for solid tumor immunotherapy? I think for anyone who's been following Immunocore's story knows that that this is a really big deal. The company has seen a lot of management turnover lately and has been at this for a long time. So it's great to see this positive phase three data. But I think even more importantly, this is one of the biggest challenges that cancer immunotherapy has been facing is turning these T-cell therapies and bispecifics that have worked so well in liquid tumors into a solid tumor therapy. The modality that we're looking at here is a bispecific protein. Unlike most of the bispecifics that are using an antibody to target a tumor antigen, this is using a soluble T-cell receptor. So this is opening up a lot of different possibilities for the types of uh, targets that you can go after, which makes it um, potentially easier to address some solid tumors. Well, it opens up target space, yeah, because the TCR binds to things on HLA 
proteins that were intracellular targets. So you're not limited to the world of surface proteins. Exactly. Yeah. One of the, the biggest challenges in translating these to solid tumors is that if you're using an antibody, it has to be a cell surface protein. And it's very hard to find cell surface proteins that are very specific for cancer cells. So in something like a, a B cell malignancy, it's okay if the target's expressed on B cells because you can knock out all the B cells and they'll come back. But that's not okay for solid tumors. It's going to cause a problem in a lot of different tissues. So it's a soluble TCR on one part of it, and then there's another part. These are T-cell engaging peptides. So the other part also engages the CD3, like any other bispecific. Mm -hmm. So is it part antibody, part TCR? I believe so. Now, one thing that's interesting to note about Immunicore, for those who haven't been following it closely, as Lauren said, they have had some management shakeup, but they did bring in early last year Bahija Jalal, who's the longtime Metamune and AstraZeneca president, R&D leader. She came on board in January 2019 after about 11 years in the AstraZeneca and Metamune universe. So they definitely have uh, steady hands at the wheel there. What are you looking for next from this company, Lauren? I think we're waiting to see what happens with the regulatory filing. These data were really strong in uveal melanoma. And in addition to being a, a huge win for the company and for the modality, this is a big deal for those patients. These are incredibly cold tumors. And I don't think there's been a new therapy approved in, in 40 years or something. So the fact that these are cold tumors is also really impressive for an immunotherapy because that's been another big challenge is trying to find ways to get the immune cells into tumors that have sort of blocked them off. It's a suggestion that these TCR bispecifics could potentially be one modality to address solid tumors and to address cold tumors. Yeah. Um, patients a win for patients and a win for the company, I think. Thanks for the update there, Lauren and, and Steve and Selena, of course. That's all we have time for this week. I'd just like to remind everyone that Biocentury and Bay Helix recently wrapped up the live portion of our seventh China Healthcare Summit. It's the first time we did it virtually, which means there's still time to register. All sessions will be available for at least another week, and you can register at www.biocenturychinasummit.com. All of our podcasts are available on our website, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. And music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education, such as their upcoming Symphony for Science on December 17th.